Psychological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Many times, when we think about human history, what we're really considering is the developments that have taken place quite recently, usually events that have occurred between a few hundred and a few thousand years ago. However, we know from scientific findings that modern humans have been around for at least 60,000 years, and possibly longer than 200,000 years. So the question which philosophers and scientists alike ask themselves is, what were we doing all of that time? <laughs> Today we're discussing the sapient paradox. I love that. I just think, well, we're sitting twiddling our collective <laughs> yeah. yeah, so you and I were talking about a little bit before we got on the air, but that's the tricky part um, about prehistory is that there's no records. <laughs> There's no written records. So without written records, it's very hard to determine what was happening. And um, things have gotten, um, you know, we've, we've made scientific discoveries yes. um, since then that have really only, in my view anyways, um, complicated the picture even more. But we'll get into that a little bit. We'll start with yeah. what is the sapient paradox? Uh, I, I will start with that, but I'm going to do, I'm not going to get us off track, but I just want to acknowledge that this is the anniversary of the death of Ludwig Wittgenstein. And Wittgenstein, to me, is directly applicable to this. So we'll get, we'll get to that. Okay. The sapient paradox, well, you've, you've, you've essentially said it. It was posited or coined by um, a, a very well-regarded uh, scientist who I think now is 85, um, sociologist, a, a, a field crosser, uh, many books, many articles, uh, named Renfrew. Uh, and he and he's essentially was looking at the time period of, of humanity, whether it's uh, 200,000 years or 100,000 years, but only in the past 10,000 or so, according to what he's determining from for all kinds of reasons, um, salient scientific reasons, but that that we just started growing up. Yeah, uh, and so as you said, what, the the question is why were we around so long before we started taking off? Now, uh, Bill, so that's that's in a nutshell. Yeah, and what I was talking about just a. Uh, a couple minutes ago with the picture getting more complicated is that so Colin Renfrew um, sort of started talking about the sapient paradox in 1994. So it's, it's very recent, you know, less than 30 years old. Um, and at that time they were thinking that, you know, modern humans emerged about 60,000 years ago and then um, developed writing possibly as early as 40,000 years ago, but probably later than that. And then, you know, about 12,000 years ago, we started, you know, there's the agricultural revolution things. Right. But since that time, um, they've made scientific um, findings in caves in France and other places that have moved that timeline even further back in history. So now they're saying, well, modern humans may have existed 100, 200, or even 300,000 years ago yeah. Yeah. Um, with, you know, possible evidence for um, written language and um, symbolic communication going back possibly as far as 170,000 years ago. So 
the farther back in history you move the timeline, the more perplexing it becomes that nothing, quote unquote, seemed to happen until 12,000 years ago. Um, But we refer to early humans as prehistoric, but that's not technically true, as we're sort of talking about right now. What do we know about them? Well, as you said, we, we, we know that there, there were agricultures. There were, um, the current work would suggest that, without doing too, too many blanket statements, but that there were as many variants of culture as there would be for a diverse species like ourselves. And so many ways of farming, many models of 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 governing or of being in a communal existence, uh, none of them idyllic. Because it's always it's always misplaced to assume that because many cultures had chattel slavery and that's a big deal. Uh, but it was it was ensconced in various ways. Some did not. It, their their food was as different as it could possibly be along a coastline of a couple hundred miles difference in some cases. There, there was the, the the art thing is what always gets complicated because there are those um, like Renfrew who s- sort of marginalize and, if not trivialize, put it in corners of things that are found in non-Western traditional places. So the the point with him, part of the the point that he point that he put goes after is that art didn't really emerge much but we you know and people jump to the caves of Lascaux and you look at the dating on that but that that's only one example and he's saying there's not really that much around a few trinkets some jewelry a couple of paintings here and there of, in a cave but I think that that's and I lack humility saying this. I think that's short-sighted. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying his work is that this man is <laughs> an exceeding genius at the work that he does. But we all have blinders. And I, and I think that the more we uncover things, the more we find uh, that maybe we have to stretch our definitions of art. We, when, we, when we work in our own paradigms or our own models, and that's what makes history so hard. We don't see things that we don't think to see. Right, yeah, yeah. And so I think that, that yeah, there was agriculture, there was art to some extent. There were some, uh, playing is too whimsical a word, but um, some experiments with money or trade or, or those kind of things. There were technology, the weaponry, the, the cooking implements and so on were clearly changing from flake to flint and to, to stone and beyond. And, and so it's not like we were just sitting around doing nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not even um, fair to say we weren't sitting around doing nothing right. because um, <laughs> in the article that you and I were reading, yeah. this sort of inspired our, our, search into the the question and down the rabbit hole of research. <laughs> um, one of the ones they um, talk about is Homo igerastis, I think, yes. um, who they have evidence that when, which is not human in the sense of the word, that we 
prescribed to it. But as we've talked about in the past few weeks with speciesism, right, we tend to place in categories things that are different from us. But so this is a relative of humanity yeah. um, who had culture, right? And what they found was that when these beings lived in close proximity, their tools and their technology developed um, at a faster pace. Whereas when it, there was evidence they were spread out, their development stagnated some. Um, so yeah, there was obviously, um, you know, the, when I put, you know, um, nothing was happening in quotation marks earlier, that's where the quotation marks come in is, is that by nothing we mean um, we're talking about the exponential advancements humans have made that's it in in the that's past it, maybe, i mean yeah. if you think about it you know a hundred years ago um nobody had ever been to space you know nobody there were no jets you know you had prop planes world war one people were bomber planes in world war one people were just holding bombs over the side right, of planes. a prop plane and dropping them you know a hundred years before that there was no cars you know <laughs> right hot air balloons were just being invented the first camera was being invented these are hundred your time increments. increments We're yeah. talking hundreds of thousands of years of, of time increments. So it's huge scales of time. So so the perplexing question of the sapien paradox um, isn't necessarily positing that nothing happened, but it's positing that advancement was taking place at such a slow rate, um, and, and we don't know why that is. Yeah, and, and there are counter-arguments that... that put the matter to a metaphor. You take small steps as you're learning to walk before you take larger ones. I, I think implied in this, this, I mean, he says the most significant developments in society and technology took place in the last 10,000 years. Well, significant by what measure? Right, I, I'm not yes. suggesting they are. And, and he's not using the word progress, because then I would really... Hmm. But just because you have computers doesn't mean you've progressed. Right. Uh, I mean, you've, you've, you've progressed in your technological wizardry, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean. I mean, I, I'm glad that we can sit and talk to people around the planet uh, on a Saturday. That's amazing. Does that make us a better species? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I'm not sure that I'm in a position to really, I don't want to make a judgment call on that. But there are lots of other things going on that we'll get to. And, and, and so how you use language, which is what Wittgenstein was all about, mm -hmm. uh, to frame or to contextualize or to privilege uh, certain phases of history is, is, is worth thinking about. Yeah, and so... This is sort of foreshadowing um, kind of the three major um, views on, on the sapient paradox that we're, we'll get to. But I think before we get there, it, there's a kind of a, a fun question to ask, which is, what were early humans' views on their histories? So like we were talking about, prehistoric humans, we don't have any written records of what was going on. No. But when people started to write things down, or oral traditions that have existed um, prior to that time that have been passed down. What did people generally say about the their histories? Well, oral traditions are always tricky too, because the people who started only 
100 maybe 200 years ago to try to collect oral histories. Well, not everybody who's intruded upon by somebody else who says, can you tell me your story, is going to tell you. <laughs> there was a lot of tomfoolery going on uh, solely righteously. Uh, so, yeah, yes, there was, there was some significant translation and so on. But even that, if we take the stories that we have and we take them as, as honestly shared and, and we learn from, and, I, and there is, has been much of that, uh, more than we probably deserve. Uh, cultures tend to think of themselves as the people. <laughs> that definite article, no matter how you translate it, shows up in cultures around the planet. Uh, tend to think that they have a system that, that functions well. Not any different than us, right? You know, uh, really, in that in that in that sense, um, want good lives for their families and their communities, and and uh, sort of look askance at something that's too new. <laughs> yeah. So, so ancient humans weren't weren't that different from modern humans. And that gets at the heart of the sapien paradox is that these humans that um, were around 60 to 300,000 years ago were physiologically identical to us, right? Essentially. Well, and, and, and the varieties of humanity, when you talk about, yes. this is no small thing. We, we, we've talked about Neanderthals before as an example. Mm -hmm. Neanderthals. Uh, as one uh, set of writers has pointed out time and time again, you would be hard-pressed if uh, dressed in current clothing to know the the alternate homo not sapien on a subway. Right. Right. But still, you have a culture in which you have a a planet and or it's, there was not planetary communication going on. You have a place where if peoples did encounter each other, they realized they were probably realized they were encountering somebody different from them, um, but not in the ways that we think of. Yeah, as different. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to introduce a, a scientific concept because I think it will help. Yeah, um, both with this and with um, what you were previously talking about—people from a different culture not being willing to just tell their story to an anthropologist or that sort of thing—and yeah. that's ecological validity. And this is a concept that, that gets kind of pushed to the side in a lot of um, science media. Um, you know, everybody, anybody who enjoys science, you know, your Google News feed will start popping up with, um, you know, latest study talks about this. Yes. Even if you don't like science, you probably, you probably <laughs> see this once in a while in your news feed. Study shows this. Um, and, you know, science and the gold standard of science, right, is these randomized controlled trials. But an important part of the scientific process is that there's a trade-off, right? Um, you're going to get the a result that, that gets most at the cause of an effect um, in a randomized controlled laboratory experiment. But in a laboratory randomized control experiment, those conditions are most divorced from what the behavior is likely, where the behavior 
the environment that the behavior is likely to be produced yep. in. So yep. when an anthropologist goes to a people and says, tell me your story, and they tell him a story, um, the story that they tell him is probably going to be very dependent on the ecological validity of the anthropologist's approach. So if he's made some attempt to connect with and embed himself into the society and, and t- attempt to understand them and, and you know, show an honest effort, he might get different results than somebody who shows up in a white coat, doesn't bother to learn the language and just says, <laughs> tell me your story through a translator, right? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of the same thing um, with, with hominid species interacting in the past. If we look at the evidence, right, it, it can be easy to say, oh, well, based off of these cave markings or, you know, this campfire or whatever, these are how the hominid species interacted. Yep. But the ecological validity um, really demonstrates that it's much more complicated than that, right? We know that humans and Neanderthals and other hominid species competed. We also know that they interbred. And it's kind of like what you're saying earlier. We have examples of Elagaritan societies, of chattel slavery societies, with no, you know, with no um, civilization, no media, no communication networks, every group, every tribe of hominids was, had its own self-governance, its own ways of doing things. And so very how complicated they, ways. So. Yeah. And so each one of them, when they came into contact with another group, was likely to have just as diverse a number of interactions, whether it was wiping them out or you know, assimilating and interbreeding or trading and, and you know, having playing purely, one set against another set against another set to ensure their own survival. And, yeah. So, so this idea of, of ecological validity basically says, you know, when we're examining, especially when we're examining prehistoric topics, when we're looking at things that happened before those records, we have to be very careful about trying to definitively say anything happened a certain way because we can we don't have access to observing what happened all right. we're looking at is is very scant evidence from from the very distant past that, that's wonderful you brought this up it, it, for many reasons but, but primarily what you just said we we like well it's again it's the illusion of explanatory depth we like to think we know more than we do hmm. yeah it's really hard to say. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And then, and then when you have uh, some anthropologists and scientists uh, respectfully uh, taking, uh, as they need to, as they should, um, issue with the sapien paradox by saying, look, the, the radical break, as they call it, uh, between whatever else there was and uh, human act, uh, advancement was when you start finding artifacts and adornments. And that goes back 70,000 years. Hmm. Okay, so what happens if you find an artifact, an adornment, a coin from 100,000 years ago? And, uh, oh, all right, well, yeah, but that still doesn't, that just makes it all w- w- worse. Why did it take even longer? Yes. Yeah. In, in order, as, as we said at the beginning, but we're, 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 we're assuming that it, it wasn't happening. You said ecologically, we're, we're not thinking hard, I think, ab- uh, about the conditions 
of the of the micro cultures. Yeah, and also the time scale, right? Because you know, and, and I'm not endorsing this viewpoint or saying that there's any kind of evidence for it. But what I'm saying is, as a purely as a thought experiment, which we do a lot on <laughs> on a philosophy podcast, right? Right. Hundreds of thousands of years is plenty of time for primitive civilizations to arise and fall with no way of knowing that it happened, right? People could build small towns or villages out of mud huts. They could have agriculture in isolated places of the world and survive like that for hundreds of years. And then all of that could get wiped out by a climate change or by a, a, a violent species or something. And then you have no record of it. And that's why we, that's why we avoid the word primitive because it has that whole Western white crap built into it. <laughs> you know, oh, well, it's, it's one step away from the word savage, which the Brits and everyone loved to use for hundreds of years. No, let's, if you can build something that lasts in an ice age, uh, I mean, we have already, look at, I, I've forgotten the title of the book, um, but it's essentially what would happen across one year, five years, ten years if we were not here, if we were just gone? Yeah. You've seen the book, right? Yes, they, yes. And, and there have been shows about it, right? In, 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 in less than a few months, whole system shut down. In a year, vines have grown up over our buildings, and then most things are collapsing. We think we are so high and mighty. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got an anecdotal example of that where um, my brother and I have 60 acres of, of woodland. And um, there's a cabin there now, and we know in the past that there used to be um, other structures. And so uh, as we were clearing out some, some forest and stuff, we, we found us, there's a stone foundation. And there's, there's nothing on top of it, and it's just these old mossy stones, and half of them have fallen off each other and stuff. And you go, man, you know, what, what, would, this, what would this have been? You know, it's, well, we'll never know because it was so long ago. And then one day, uh, a guy stopped by and he goes, hey, you know, my name's so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, my dad uh, used to own this land, and he sold it to your dad. And so we had a good long chat with him, and we asked him about it. He goes, oh, yeah, we were trying to dam up some, some water to get the, wa the stream to, to go farther down land. He goes, and we go, wait. So you put those stones there? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. That was, that was probably 40 years ago. Yeah. And you like, were thinking hundreds. And, uh, yeah, yeah, we were yeah. thinking it was probably the 1800s, you know. <laughs> um, but especially in the climate we live in with the humidity and things, yeah. things just rot and decompose and, and go to dust. And that's yeah. not the same everywhere in the world. In some very dry climates, you have access. I remember going out west to uh, the Four Corners area and climbing through um, Anasazi Indian ruins and finding, you know, some places that still had thatched roofs on them and things. So um, it's it's different across the world, but yeah. So this roughly ten percent of our existence is historically documented. Why are there no earlier records? So the right. So the the obvious answer is that there's no language or there's no writing. But why? Why is it? Why, why wouldn't there be writing? Well, we, we assume that. <clears throat> and we assume it for many, many reasons from evolutionary standpoint. But what media, what medium would survive 
or could survive. I, I think, as I said this before we started the show, I, if this is just me. I, 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 I humbly, truly um, asserted that the further we get away from whatever time period we're talking about, I think the less likely we are to have evidentiary material because of everything that, that can be worn and torn and eroded and so on. Um, let's suppose we didn't have anything. Let's suppose we could never find anything else. We've, we found the last archaeological find. That's not going to be true. But And then we have that perplexion. It's not a paradox. It's a perplexity. What do, how can we know? We want to know. And the, the short answer is, well, probably we can't. Hmm. But why, why do we want to think what we think? Why didn't they have language? Why didn't they have writing? Well, if they certainly, uh, well, probably had language. Of course, their, their language was in development, but it was oral. Why? They didn't need to maintain it. There, there wasn't, you know, we, we think about what Plato said about <laughs> writing, but he did it himself. Right. <laughs> we, we are hypocritical creatures most of the time. So I, I don't think that, that that should be the baseline for making conjectures. Yeah, it's an interesting question, right? Because I think that you there's several things that, that come up there. One is that most of these societies were very small. So there wasn't really any need. I mean, when you think about written correspondence, lots of times that's meant to travel over distance mm -hmm. or it's meant to uh, record something so that, you know, there's a, a public record of it. If you have a small society, you don't need to send things over distance. And if you have a small society, you don't need to have something recorded. If you have people, if you have everybody that you know is there watching a transaction happen, then everybody knows it. But right? there's also, this, and some anthropologists assert this too, and it's something we need to point out. If you have a small society and your uh, storyteller gets killed in a hunt, You've lost mm. that memorization. If you have a, a very small collective and people with skills are gone, then you don't transfer those skills. They are skills that have to be relearned or assimilated from others if you encounter them. And so there's not, there's not this – we can't conceive of this really. We should be able to. Science fiction does, but we seem to just fall into our – well, why do they write it down? Well, um, right. You got, let's say you've got uh, this uh, 80 people, and each has a designated task, and maybe there's a second who they're trying to teach. But a walloping fire happens. Somebody goes off a cliff. Somebody is, is, is killed by a bear. Where's your knowledge? Hmm. Uh, and so, to me, that's part of the explanation of yeah, the I think, slowness. Yeah, because... So-called. You know, we... <laughs> You know, two, three hundred thousand years, sixty thousand years is a long span of time. So obviously, this not only happened, but it happened to every prehistoric culture. That's yeah, why we don't yeah, have. Yeah. You know, we have oral oral traditions, and you know, probably some of the most legitimate would be you know Australian Aboriginal people, mm -hmm. um, or maybe some some Inuits and, and and these types. But by and large, those oral traditions don't exist or they don't exist in a reliable format because things happen right and especially the longer the time frame you have the more likely it is that something's going to happen that's going to interrupt 
those lineages in and you interrupt those stories and those timelines and, and devastate the cultures. Yeah. And so I think that that's a big part of it. And I think that the, the lack of a need for writing is a big part of it. I also think that preservation of writing is, is a part of it, right? Like you were saying, how long it takes for, for things to degrade. You know, they find, um, you know, in places that are very conducive to preservation, the Dead Sea Scrolls and things. Uh, these things are only 2,000 years old, right? Yeah. But they still can't even unravel the scrolls because the paper will disintegrate. They have to use x-rays to look through the rolled up scroll and read what's on the pages, right? So if that's in, you know, a conducive spot, then before, you know, even if you had papyrus way back when, it would disintegrate. If you had a clay tablet, it would melt. It, you know, other than other than the cave writings, right, which, you know, in addition to being art, are a way of communicating, right? They drew a buffalo. That probably means buffalo. <laughs> There's no, there wasn't a need for a word. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you have... You know, so I think that there's there's multiple elements going into the preservation, the need, and also um, you know some of those other things. So I think now's a good a good um, point to introduce sort of the three big theories of what was going on during that time. Do you want to give a yeah? Let's well, okay. So I'm going to do this by way of Hobbes and Rousseau. <laughs> so. So Thomas Hobbes in the 1600s, Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the 1700s, they, they're often uh, cast as having an argument with each other, even though they weren't exactly contiguous for very long. Uh, Hobbes is the one that said life is brutish and short, unless you form government. So one of the things uh, that goes on uh, way, way before Hobbes is what we think about the formation of government, whatever we mean by that in a small communal existence, not, not empires, small groups, how do they, do they organize themselves? If so, how do they organize themselves? What are the, and in the dawn of everything, this book that I was referencing by two guys named David, wonderful in this past, uh, looks at and presents all kinds of evidentiary material. They, they sometimes over, way overgeneralize or leap off from less than certain material. But uh, that there were varieties of cultures that we have come to know that, that change their form of government depending on a season. Can you imagine this for us? So, so that there would be a time when there would be uh, the, the male... Uh, primarily, but not exclusively, of the hunting thing going on, where there'd be that you could have a tyrannical male, you could have whoever, but he's he's in charge, leading the hunt, so to speak. Uh, but winter comes, everything's brought in. Uh, the switch is to the matriarchal and to the communal, and you have that by the season. <laughs> oh. We're going to try this on, see how it works for this, but then we're going to shift our government entirely for this. Now, to me, that is a much more fluid and forward-thinking paradigm, complicated, uh, than we could even imagine, than, than we, could, we could handle. I can't imagine any 
so-called Western industrialized, post-industrial culture saying, yeah, we're going to change our form for these months, but then we're going to go back to this. We can't even handle a time change. We, we, so to, to suggest that that wasn't innovative and, and or progressive or, or complicated, uh, I think is to really miss something. And so that's one of the reasons I like this. This book. So that's that's one of them. Is that governments forming governments? Second one is gossip. Hmm. Did you? Yes. You read, yeah, yes. Yeah, okay. So you go ahead. I'm, I'm dominating the floor. Here. Yeah. The gossip trap is an interesting one. And one thing that we haven't touched on that is kind of interesting is that a lot of these things um, sort of have uh, a relationship with uh, cosmological study, right? So when you're talking about, you know, the farther we get from the beginning, the, har- the less we can actually know about it. That's kind of similar to dark energy, right? If right yeah. now we can see so far back in time, but the longer time goes on, actually the less far back we can know what happened. So the gossip trap operates on sort of the same um, thought as the Fermi paradox's great filter, right? Where, <laughs> which states that, you know, we, we wouldn't be contacted by any alien civilizations until we reached a certain point of, of technological advancement. Well, the gossip trap essentially says, um, and it's related to what you were just talking about in a small, in a small culture, um, the primary governing rule, the rule of the people, right? The leveling social force is gossip. Um, so if you have, uh, and I, you know, I think you can see this happen in, most workplaces, unfortunately, uh, you know, you have people working and then somebody gets promoted, right? Uh, so somebody that used to be a peer is now a supervisor. Yep. You have a mix of reactions to this. You have some people that think it's, you know, oh, good. They're well suited to it. They deserve it. But you have other people that, that get jealous or they think they deserved it or they think that maybe the person was just a bad pick. Or, you know, maybe they legitimately know something uh, about the person's character that they think invalidates them from that position. Well, the natural course of events is for some of these malcontented people to start talking together and to start spreading their conjectures and around the office. And before you know it, you know, you have the group of peers, the group of workers is always the larger group than management, always, mm-hmm. right? And that's just the structure of, of, a, of an organization. So all of a sudden you have all of these people on the floor um, poisoned against the the a newly appointed leader, right? And now the 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 group does not function as it should. In modern times, there's you know written rules, right? There's codexes that right. that make it so that the organization can continue on in whatever form it wants to. But before those things existed, right? You can imagine a point, and it's probably very similar to why. Um, the theory of government that you just described worked, right? Um, and it also describes why um, there, we have the, the alpha male as a myth, right? Is because if you have a small culture, um, if the hunting's good, you're, you're, your main hunter is going to be the guy in charge, right? Look at this guy. He knows what he's talking about. Everywhere we go, we're finding antelope. We're killing them. We're, For we're the hunting. Right. Right. For the hunting. But when the seasons change, when the climate changes, right? And your main hunter is going out and hunt and he's not coming back with anything, your small group can look around and go, well, who knows something about what berries we can eat, right? 
She knows what berries we can eat. She's in track. She's coming back with loads of berries every day. She's going to tell us what to do, right? So the shifting of the government is easy in that small group because you're looking to whoever has expertise and whoever is ensuring the survival of the group at the time. The gossip trap is that, but in reverse. It's the inverse position where um, rather than um, proactively promoting who is helping it's your society. Yes, it's undermining the leaders that you think are not promoting. So if you have a great hunter, um, rather than everybody supporting him because he's a great hunter, you will have people that in the back of their minds think they could be a better hunter or they have some personal vendetta against this guy. And so the gossip um, travels among the group. And before you know it, the group is poisoned against him. And without any written rules that protect this guy, right? Suddenly he's, he's disparaged, he's put down and, somebody else is raised up. This is where Rousseau comes in. I'm oversimplifying, but just for the point. So Hobbes is saying you need a government which is bigger than any of the the people in order to have a sovereign, to to make decisions that individuals would likely mess up because we're so self-absorbed. Rousseau is saying, well, the, the the best, the better model is uh, just to trust each other individually because humans are essentially good, and so they'll make the decisions. Well, okay, it's operating on probably a flawed principle, but but then we have the gossip trap, and and the and the difficulty for us now, and I think this is what has to as we it colors what we think going backward. We have the biggest gossip trap that any humans could ever have created. We have the internet, we have Facebook, Instagram, blah, 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 blah. And so people are constantly, conspiratorially, undermining other people without knowledge, without basis, other than to extol themselves or because they want to pretend they know something that they don't, that makes them feel better, or they want to be heroes, or whatever the, all the multiple motivations are. But essentially, it erodes government. It erodes the idea of authority, which is what Hobbes was talking about. And we've talked about authority before, too. And so when you have that so that any, anybody can say, well, I know better than any authority, X, Y, and Z, then you are not going to make progress. We are, I think, arguably, in a position where we say, we wonder why it took so long for us to get here. Maybe the answer is, it's not a here that we necessarily thought we would get to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's so we've, we've sort of covered the three positions um, together. So we'll break them apart a little bit. One of them that we were just talking about is the gossip trap, which this is a legitimate um, theory about how the sapient paradox proceeded. It says that over that that huge course of human history where we didn't seem to make any significant progress, the reason we didn't is because we're living in these small groups and that these small groups um, were governed by gossip, essentially. And so there was no way to establish a formalized government because anybody that was trying to, to sort of um, make progress was was getting right. cut down. So you don't so you don't have innovation. Right. If if you're the wrong kind of person, nobody likes you. So no matter what you do, it's going to be discounted. That's yeah. a, that's a human quality. Yeah. So quality. that's the gossip trap. Yeah. Um, another one 
which is really interesting and that we sort of alluded to earlier in the episode is this idea that it just seems like nothing is happening during that time. Um, but really, the most important aspects of what make us humans today were developing, which is language, culture, these sorts of things. Yep. And so if you think about it, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, um, anatomically identical human beings existed 300,000 years ago. And what does that do, right? Our, in, our initial thought is to plop ourselves down 300,000 years ago and say, yeah, how did I not know to invent language or <laughs> government or these sorts of things, right? But that's really just a sort of false perception, right? Mm-hmm. With all the same machinery, and we explore this on the show quite a bit, right? Again, what you were talking about with, with Aboriginal or, you know, with like ancient people's oral histories and things, the position of humanity is always, we've got it right. Yeah, we're, we know what's going on, right? Yeah. And the great thing about a philosophy podcast is we demonstrate <laughs> on a weekly basis that that is that's not true. Right? So, <laughs> so to say that, well, why didn't we invent language? Well, as a philosopher, rather than plopping our modern selves down in the, in the past, it, we have to envision this abstract thought experiment where we have the faculties that we have, but we we have no understanding of language as an adult person. This we have is, no we have no conception of government yeah. as an adult person, right? And if you try to put yourself in that headspace, it's not possible. But if you try to put yourself in that headspace, all of a sudden you go, how would I survive? How would I make any kind of meaningful advancement in my lifetime? And the thing is, the you know, the phylogeny of the species is very much um, predicated on on people's lifetimes. And so if no individual person can make any progress because they don't have language, they don't have culture, yeah. then how, do over, how does adding time on help? It really doesn't, right? You need to make those breakthroughs before you can make any progress. So that's the other paradigm is that, you know, it, things did indeed go slow, but- By our standards. Right. But by going slow, once we, developing language and developing culture- if you factor in the importance, you know, the monolithic importance of those, just those two things, all of a sudden the curve looks much less exponential and much more linear, yeah. Um, yeah. not based upon the material um, accomplishments, but based upon the building blocks needed, right? It's like you're taking the one giant cornerstone and putting it down, then you're building all the little stones on top of it, right? This is why I find that can seem very, very appropriate to the topic. I mean, um, he's, he believed the language didn't represent an exterior reality. It, uh, it is an instrument, a tool woven into our practice. And so language is life. We create our reality through language. Well, it's, what is your language developing to do? And how does your, because the language begins, the language uh, is a container for the stories you tell. The language is a container for the knowledge that you that that, that you want to to pass out. And 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 so if if you have like the meaning of a word, uh, when when someone explains a word to us, what are we doing? We've talked about this before, but I think we're talking back to it. We are using other words to explain it. Right. We are using abstractions 
conceptualized from an abstraction, made manifest in morphemes and phonemes, sound, that we then associate with something that everyone would understand, we think, should understand. And now we are, we have oversimplified ourselves so much in our own rhetoric that we uh, get angry if somebody doesn't understand immediately what we're talking about. Well, why would they? Because they're talking about some of the most abstract concepts there is. Truth, justice, the American way, you know, nice Superman stuff. But, but, you know, we don't know what we're talking about because we're all talking about vastly different things. And we can sit here in the 21st century and say, well, we certainly have done better than than all of those those folks to come. You just said it, the, the building block of all of it. I would assert is language. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost (laughs) all of our modern advances and adornments are really just like shingles on a roof. You know, language and culture are are the house. So without those modern adornments, it's, it's raining in here. You know, it doesn't seem like it's a very good shelter, but, but really that's what, that's what the bones of the whole thing are. You know, the, the, the progress that we've made is predicated on these huge fundamental aspects of what makes us human, you know? And you know, even today, right? If I just made a random sound and pointed at a thing, you would understand that, oh, okay, so that sound represents that thing to him. But imagine a time in human history where that was not available to you because you didn't have the internal monologue, the, the, the already established words to understand what the thing was being described, right? And this is, again, this is that importance of ontogeny versus phylogeny, right? Ontogeny, the the concept of what somebody learns throughout their lifetime, contrasted with phylogeny, which is what the species learns over the course of its existence, they're intimately interwoven, right? If you don't have people learning during their lifetime, there's nothing to pass on to anybody else. Right. And so to me, this is a very um a very uh you know, an important theory for what do you pass on? You pass on, you pass on practice. If, if you can manage to pass that on, this is how we do X. This is how we do what you pass on belief, which is founded pretty much on, uh, and and not disparaging, but belief is founded pretty much on nothing. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and so you pass these things on. Well, if you pass on a belief, you are, and if it if and it's not passing on and 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 being believed in exactly the same way, no matter how staunchly somebody tries to adhere to it, you are affecting the shape of culture, hmm. and 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 so you know that without existentialism comes to mind again. There, you know, we have the freedom to change our values. Yeah. But people get really upset about changing what they think of as a value. And and so if we experience this now in a culture that can communicate on a planetary basis instantaneously, how much more difficult would that have been? Yeah, and so we'll look at Colin Renfrew's idea, which was that essentially agriculture spurred modern human development. So his idea was that up until 12,000 years ago, um, the species was unable to settle down and grow crops. And so as a result, 
um, every human um, civilization, every was a tribe that was sort of nomadic, just roaming around, hunting, gathering. But they were, but they weren't able to to set down roots. They weren't able to build permanent buildings and to um, or know, some build permanent buildings, but then they want that not wandered. They they nomaded away doing their thing, but then they'd return to the building. They, they found all kinds of structures that the structures out of mammoths, for instance, mm-hmm. that were used for ritual practice once a year to the place to which you would return, change your practice <laughs> for the duration of the time being there, and then go back out. Yeah. Yeah, so and so that's sort of his idea. And so, the three ideas. You have your gossip trap, right? You have your um, re-examination of prehistory um, and, and sort of contextualizing the importance of language and culture. Mm-hmm. And then you have um, agriculture and yeah. permanent civilizations um, as being that. To me, the one that seems um, the most inspiring there is is that re-examining of prehistory because both of the other two, the gossip trap and the arising of agriculture, both assumed that language was was in place before then and humans still didn't make um, meaningful improvements. And to me, that seems very hard to, to conceptualize. I think that if language arises, right, and suddenly you have this ability to communicate, that is what really would spur, you know, um, the development of the species. Yes, in my mind. but what we, I, I agree, but what we mean, again, by development this is right. Yeah, back yeah. to vacancy. Okay. So it's because we do this a lot, even though we, I mean, we, he says, don't for heaven's sake be afraid of talking nonsense, but you must pay attention to your nonsense, which is as much as to say, speculate like crazy. But what's leading you to that speculation? And where do you, yeah. And so development, the concept of development, this comes back to what you were saying before um what's getting passed on during the ontogeny of a person's lifetime practice and belief right well practice and belief both back then and now right tend to encourage rote behaviors they don't tend to encourage innovation no. or ex, you know exploration so you know it, even if you had you could have language conceivably right but if your language is saying don't travel outside this area because it's not safe don't try eating this thing because it's not safe. There's no value to, you know, you know, animals are to be avoided at all costs because they could kill you, that sort of thing. Well, that's going to hamper the the quote-unquote development of your species because you're not going to have access to to furs to heat yourself or meat to grow larger brains or, you know, possibly more, um, you know, areas that are more ecologically available for, um, harvesting certain plants that might be beneficial to you. I'm going to walk way out on the thinnest ice possible and say we have a a pop cultural example for this in in a Disney film, cartoon, which uh, I know there are are all kinds of things that could be tossed at me for saying this, and and rightly so, because I'm talking nonsense. But uh, Moana, essentially, it's a parable about uh, a culture for a, a marvelous culture that has established itself. It's, it's I know it's fictionalized, but it's it, it draws on roots of, of various things um, on, an, on an island, and they have a rich storytelling, but they start not paying attention to their storytelling. 
and just tell the stories about safety and and everything we need is right here and always will be right here, except when it isn't. And then somebody has to really break out in order to make sure that the culture continues. And I think that not to put too fine a point on it, that is partly in this discussion that, that we're having. You know? Yeah. I mean, another Wittgenstein, right now, he says at one point in his writing, Tractatus, uh, I'm sitting with a philosopher in the garden. He says again and again, I know that is a tree, pointing to a tree that is near us. Someone else arrives and hears this, and I tell him, this fellow isn't insane. We are only doing philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) What I know is not much. I know less than Renfrew on this topic. Hmm. I'm not suggesting in the least that I have any counter-argument that uh, would somehow... I'm not interested in uh, taking down... His research is not a weapon. It's not a. It, it's a. It's a speculation. Yeah. If anything, rather than taking anything down, I'm more interested in in trying to integrate the things because yeah. I think that that's probably where the truth lies, as it does in many things as that it we does examine. In many right? things. Yeah. You know, certainly we have we have evidence for gossip traps. Where certainly we have evidence for the importance of language and culture. Um, in, in human civilizations. Certainly, we have evidence for the importance of agriculture and government in, in human you know, civilizations. We have evidence of cultures that still exist that had five and six genders. Right. And we also and, have evidence, like we were talking about earlier, um, that there is no one you know, definitive idea of what prehistory was like. We know that each each tribe was likely very different and how they interacted was different. And so the truth, right? Here we go with the, that, you know, the truth, right? The facticity. Right. Is going to be evasive because we are operating off of a very small sliver of, of evidence and, and observable material. Um, and we're basically extrapolating based upon the things that we know work now. Right. But, that's what I've, I've been trying to demonstrate throughout the episode is what we know now is alien to what we were like then and what we knew then. Yeah. And so trying to, trying to walk back and, and figure it out is, is a worthy thing and it's an interesting thing, but it's not something we'll ever be able to do the same way we've talked about in previous weeks with speciesism, right? Um, you know, and knowing that, that animals have, have a consciousness but always trying to frame it in our own idea, right? One of my favorite documentaries was was one on eyes, you know, and and the the poor the poor biologist that that they had narrated, you know, he kept showing saying over and over again, "All right, we're going to show you a simulation of how a mantis shrimp sees things." I have to tell you that this is a simulation. You're seeing what a mantis shrimp sees through human eyes, which doesn't mean anything at all. Right? <laughs> so they put this poor guy out there and then he's the whole time, he's just giving disclaimers, you know, and the whole time we're seeing these visuals and thinking, oh, wow, this is wild that this is what they see. No, that's not what they see because yeah. we're using their eyes and then we're looking at them through human eyes and a human brain, not through a mantis shrimp brain, not through mantis shrimp eyes, right? right. right. So we have 
the faintest um, idea based off of science, based off of philosophy, and you know, and and this sort of empiricism and rationalism of what could be going on. But what is going on is completely unavailable. This makes it wonderful. This is what we've said time and again and we'll continue to. You brought up cosmology. <clears throat> Just this week, every week, every week, you, if you read the science news, or, uh, astronomically, astrophysics, another part of more, more galaxies being found that are doing what they shouldn't be doing. Naughty, naughty galaxies. <laughs> They're not moving the way they should be moving. They're a different shape than they ought to be. And it keeps changing and, and making, um, you could say undermining, but it isn't undermining. It's, it's, it's forcing a care and a re-speculation and a re-examination, and that's what really good science does. Mm. It does not say, we have the answer. And the people who construe it that way are missing the boat on what science is about. It's about, we don't have the answer, we are seeking it, and we are finding little bits and pieces to help with the mystery. And that answer won't be complete, and there are going to be some things wrong with that answer, but we're getting closer. Mm. Yeah. And 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 this, it's true with anthropology, it's with astrophysics it's just the case yeah yeah it's always a never a never-ending journey and as you just said science isn't about facts necessarily right we don't you can never prove anything in science you're always when you when you perform an experiment you're you're either supporting or rejecting the null hypothesis which is the status quo right you and even if you find support for your experimental hypothesis you can never say, well, this experiment proves that this thing. No, you say this experiment supports the idea that this is what's going on, right? And so the the idea of science is you continue to gather evidence and it will support a paradigm. But eventually, you're going to find evidence that, that doesn't support the paradigm. And then what happens is you have to reinvent the paradigm. Does that mean that the, the previous one was wrong? No, what it means is that you're operating with the best knowledge that you have. And this right. is where our conversation on verisimilitude comes in, right? <laughs> it's, you, we like to think of things as being right or things as being wrong. But really, progress, especially scientifically, is just gathering the evidence that you can with the best tools that you can in the most reliable way that you can and saying, what does this point to? Yeah. And then identifying that as your paradigm. But that's always going to be changing. And that's progress. And that's, and, and that's history. Right and, right, and that's and 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 this is this is about a long sweep of human history. But even if we go into a very narrow, short uh, extrapolation from human history, <clears throat> the same kind of mistakes get made, where people will say, "Well, this is absolutely what the founding fathers meant." You don't know that. You can't know that and to pretend to know that <laughs> yeah it's it, it, because we parse we parse words we we, we we think a word is static we're missing Wittgenstein entirely we're missing the reality we create with our words and 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 so then you take that all the way back ten thousand years <laughs> yeah and, and which was only a small amount of time compared to <laughs> right and but and that's why I think language plays such a big part in this right is because much like the Cambrian explosion sort of 
befuddled scientist, right? Well, there was no life. Then all of a sudden there was this explosion of mm-hmm. life, right? Um, to Colin Renfrew's um, idea, you know, this, I, this point that, well, it seemed like there was no language. Then all of a sudden there's this explosion. I saw an interesting thing this week. This it was, it's in a, a museum. It's the world's oldest written complaint. And oh. so, um, you know, we have, we've talked about the, the first writing that there ever was, you know, and it was a receipt for a beer transaction. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, the oldest written complaint is a complaint that a guy wrote because he got the wrong grade of copper. Right? <laughs> and you laugh that's and you so think human. that's funny, but you think, well, that's the first written complaint that we have, right? The thing that he's complaining about is already very advanced. The wrong grade of copper. They were grading copper at this point for That's different applications, yeah. which means yeah. that you know human development, right? In quotes, and human language and technology had been going on for a long time before this written complaint existed. And it's not a, all that fundamentally different from something you might get in the company. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so you know, again, we're looking at these things, and like you were saying with the James Webb Space Telescope, you keep looking back and you keep going man, these organized galaxies should not exist. Well, scientists keep looking back and finding new archaeological sites and going, man, <laughs> written language and, you know, you know, written language or tools or art should not exist this far back. And um, it really deepens the mystery and it, and it increases the need for philosophers and scientists to reexamine our, our preconceptions about nature and reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. So until next time. Thank you.